What keeps someone from publishing your book and claiming your writing as their own? You may be surprised by the answer, but it is the United States government. America was founded by scholars, and they put protections for intellectual property into Article 1 of the United States Constitution. That's just how important it was for them. Now, normally, when we talk about legal matters on this show, it doesn't apply to our international listeners. But copyright is special. Thanks to the Berne Convention, most nations recognize each other's copyrights. And thanks to the WIPO Copyright Treaty, copyright law is pretty similar from one country to another. Nevertheless, there is a lot of misunderstanding in the author community when it comes to copyright and copyright law. And these misunderstandings can get you into a lot of trouble and even, in some cases, ruin your writing career if you're not careful. So how do you get copyright law to work for you rather than against you? Well, that is what we're going to talk about in this episode of Novel Marketing, the longest-running book marketing podcast in the world. I'm Thomas Umstadt, Jr., CEO of Author Media, and this is the show for writers who want to build their platform sell more books, and make a difference with writing worth talking about. And we are joined today by who I think is perhaps the perfect guest to talk about this topic. He is a best-selling indie and traditionally published author who also happens to be a lawyer. And more importantly than all of that, he is an official friend of the show. James Scott Bell, welcome to the Novel Marketing Podcast. Wow, Thomas, it's great to be with you and to be perfect. I have never been so declared, even not even from my clients. <laughs> now, speaking of clients, uh, I should say up front that while James Scott Bell is a lawyer, he is not your lawyer. This episode is meant for general legal education and is not a replacement for talking to an attorney about your specific situation. And this isn't even a sales pitch because Jim is too busy writing best-selling books to take on legal clients. So we're talking to him mostly as an author who has a legal background rather than as a lawyer you could call if you had legal questions. Well done. Well done. <laughs> That's our official disclaimer. Every time you talk to a lawyer, they make you read a disclaimer. <laughs> it's a nature of the beast. But we should open up with a really basic question, and that is, what is a copyright? Well, a Copyright literally is the right to make copies. Thanks for having me on the show, Thomas. <laughs> but no, seriously, that's that's really where where it comes from. It's the right of a content creator of intellectual property. And usually, we talk about books, songs, photographs, things of that nature. And the creator has the exclusive right to make copies and distribute them according to uh, their their own lights and how they want to have it have it go out into the world and protects them from someone else taking that content and selling it themselves so as you mentioned it was so important to the founders that they put actually put it in the constitution you know because they believed that primarily the written word in books was the way to foster intellectual discussion and to debate ideas and so on. And they wanted to protect that right. So that could be done in a way that was uh, safe for those who were, who were publishing. And so that's come down to us in federal law, the creation of the Copyright Office, and is now copyright a, a matter of federal jurisdiction. 
And uh, that's that's the protection we have. And I will say in the grand scheme of things, copyright law is kind of a new concept. In ye olden days, when a Roman poet or historian would write a history, they would not make money from selling copies of that history. Because to make a copy, a scribe would have to spend months writing a copy by hand. And so that process was so expensive, there wasn't any money in it for the author. So the way that the authors got paid back in the day was by performing their books. So Herodotus would perform his histories for live audiences, and that's what he got paid for, not for selling copies of his books, because copying was so expensive. Yeah, well, let me say in those days also that copyright enforcement was usually done with a Roman sword. So that was how they took care of it. <laughs> that was how they took care of business back then. That's how they took care of a lot of things back in the day. Thankfully, we live in a more civilized time. So the next most important question is about filing for copyright. Because I know that, and I've said it on the podcast, you don't have to file a copyright to have a copyright. But how important is it as an author to file your copyright with the United States Copyright Office? Yeah, the, the, the more proper term is to register the copyright. You own the copyright. You don't have to apply for it. You don't have to file for it. You own it. And the Copyright Office allows you to register the copyright that you own with them to give you certain advantages. I mean, one is that it creates a date certain for the creation of the content. And there is an advantage if you register it within three months that should there uh, come a case of copyright infringement that you want to pursue you're entitled to what's called statutory damages, which is a set number of damages that you don't have to prove have actually happened. So there's that's kind of a protection for you. That's a huge protection because most copyright cases never go to a jury. They almost always settle out of court. And when you have the ability to receive statutory damages, because it's not uh, if you get statutory damages, you also get attorney's fees, which means if they fight it out with you, they could lose their shirts, right? I think it's what $100,000, $150,000 of statutory damages on top of whatever you would win in the court case, plus attorney's fees, which also means, let's say you're not a very wealthy person and the idea of hiring an attorney is really hard. Well, if you've registered your copyright and you can get your attorney's fees compensated, guess what? There are attorneys that might be willing to take up your case just in hopes of winning to get those attorney's fees refunded. And that suddenly puts you in a much stronger position negotiating a settlement where otherwise they may have blown you off. Now they're paying you a lot of money uh, to settle out of court. Yeah. The downside of that is that you have to go through federal litigation. It's a federal case. Nobody likes litigation. It's high stress. It's something to be avoided if at all possible. But there is that added protection when you register within that time period. That's right. And there's a second court system that especially indie authors uh, end up having all of their issues handled through, and it is the Amazon court system. And instead of having judges and attorneys, it is handled with customer support representatives who are in some other country who may or may not understand what you're saying. And in my experience, having a registered copyright really helps an Amazon court. Because if you're in a dispute with another author and you can share your registration information, that often ends the discussion because you have evidence, the other side does not, and Amazon will go with who's got the paperwork in most cases. Well, you actually don't need the registration of copyright for that. You have the 
Amazon date stamp. You know, you can actually, they know when you publish your book and they don't require you to show any official registration. You know, they have their own form that you can uh, submit and having the date certain that when you published right there on Amazon is also effective. I've never had, had to deal with that, but I know others who do and that, that usually takes care of the problem. And that's what you want. You know, damages, yeah, that's that would be nice. But what you want is the illicit uh, book taken off of, of Amazon, which is like a death sentence for the book. So that's uh, one avenue to pursue that doesn't require registration. Yeah, the whole idea of protection is that if you have enough protection, you never need to use it, right? There's a an old joke, an old Texas joke about an old lady. She's driving down the highway. It's an old Texas road. And she's speeding and the, you know, the county sheriff pulls her aside and she says, you know, officer, I need to tell you, I have a concealed carry permit. I have a nine millimeter uh, pistol in my glove box. I've got a 40 millimeter pistol uh, in my um, pocket and I've got a shotgun on the rack of my truck, right? She, and the, the, and the sheriff says, ma'am, what are you afraid of? And she says, not a darn thing. <laughs> you know, I, I learn something every time I come on this show, Thomas, and that that's just delightful. And I'm going to uh, I'm, I'm going to uh, infringe that and use it when I speak to people. Yeah. So it, in, it, perhaps a more politically correct metaphor would be all of the bikes on the bike rack have a lock. If your bike has two locks, then the thief isn't going to go after your lock. You have the extra protection often means that you don't need to use it. So our hope is you never end up litigating. Just the, the fact that you've registered the copyright indicates that you're savvy and that you're not the one to mess with, right? Because if somebody can't afford to register a copyright, because what is it, $50, $70 to register a copyright for I books? Think something I think it's $45, something like that. Yeah. So, so it's not a ton of money, but if somebody, if $45 is a lot of money for you, you're signaling to the predators, the legal trolls out there, that you're potential prey, right? If you can't afford a $45 registration fee, you probably can't afford an attorney, which means they can push you around with scary letters. And you don't want that. You don't want to signal to the wolves that you are one of the weak of the flock, so to speak. Well, you can. Now, let's be clear about this, though, is that you can register a copyright at any time if you intend to go forward with uh, a litigation or, or something to that effect. You can do that at any time. You just don't get that added protection that we talked about earlier. But the fact that you don't register right away is not does not mean, does not preclude you from a, a copyright infringement case. You still have the protection of the law. You can still go to court and you can still win, but you won't win as much and you may not get your attorney's fees compensated, which means if you're listening to this, you're like, oh my goodness, I haven't registered any of my copyrights. Don't panic. You can still do it. In fact, James, walk us through that process. What does the copyright registration process look like? You just, you go to the copyright office website and you follow their their form and you can do it all online. It's not complicated. You mean we don't have to put an envelope inside of an envelope with a self-addressed stamped envelope and fill out this form and wait six months to see if we filled out the form correctly? We can all do it on a website like it's the 21st century? It's amazing. Well, you know, <laughs> reminds me that back in the old days, before you were born, Thomas, authors would uh, sometimes make, you know, make a physical copy of the book and put it 
and sent it to themselves, registered mail, so that they had that official date on there, not open it. And so that if there ever came litigation, they could bring that into court as evidence of the registration. But, you know, that now you can do it through the copyright office very simply. Yeah, didn't Willie Nelson win a court case with that? And he mailed himself some song lyrics and they opened it in court. I want to say it was our, our hometown hero who tested that. That's not what we're recommending, though. It, it's cheap enough and easy enough to register that you should just do that. Don't send yourself mail and then yeah, have to no, keep up no, with that's, it. That's old school. <laughs> yeah, that's old that, school. that is not the recommended path. So, you know, registering the copyright is important, but it's not required. Another thing that's not required but is also a good idea is the copyright notice, right? So you open up the page, and there's that page with all of the copyright information on it. So what are some tips for what to, for somebody who's an indie publishing and they're responsible for writing that page? What are some tips of things to put on that page? Well, the copyright notice is usually fairly standard. For example, a lot of indie writers use the Vellum software for uh, formatting their books, and that includes a standard copyright notice, which, which usually says something like, no part of this book may be reproduced, et cetera, et cetera. You know? And then it usually says, without permission of the author or w- brief quotations in a review or a, or a blog or something like that. That's the sort of standard issue copyright notice. And then all rights reserved is usually stated there. Now, is that always a good idea? Because the marketer in me is like, sometimes it's not a good idea to reserve all those rights, to encourage more quotation and more adaptation can get the book in front of more people, which can ultimately lead to more sales. Yeah, I don't know. I think most people understand that if they're going to review a book or talk about it, that they can use brief excerpts. So I'm not sure that that's necessary to uh, put in that proviso. I have noticed that some big publishers like Hachette have started using a copyright notice that is kind of educational. They, For example, I have here one that I, I found in a book. It says, Hachette Book Group supports the right to free expression and the value of copyright. The purpose of copyright is to encourage writers and artists to produce the creative works that enrich our culture. And then they go on to say the scanning, uploading without permission is theft of the author's intellectual property. So they're actually doing an educational kind of disclaimer. And then they give the email to write to them if they want permission. So they make it very easy to ask for permission. So I kind of find that a creative and somewhat modern way of helping people understand why there is this copyright protection. I love that because that education is really important. And I will say, suing your super fans for copying your work (laughs) does not endear them to you. Just ask Metallica, (laughs) right? Like the music industry and the big record labels and the popular musicians lost a lot of credibility with listeners because of how mean they were, right? You have some single mom and she's being sued for $150,000 worth of statutory damages for you know copying a song on Napster. And it, let's say it's a Britney Spears song. That single mom now hates Britney Spears. And all of her friends hate Britney Spears. And everyone who read the newspaper hates Britney Spears, right? It's not a good way to build a connection with your audience. And yet you do want to protect your intellectual property, right? You don't want people just reading your book for free or listening to your song for free. And so giving that education, I think, is a really solid strategy. Because you can't afford to do what the music labels were doing and they don't even do it anymore. <laughs> they don't sue like they used to. 
because it just it wasn't a solid strategy. So there's a time to go after pirates, but typically your fans doing something because they love you, right? Let's say they do a derivative work, right? You, you have all rights reserved, which means you have the right to make derivative works of your book. And a fan draws one of your characters or draws one of your scenes and publishes it to their website. Technically, that is a copyright violation. And just as importantly, you should encourage it, not discourage it. Right? If you yell at your fan, like, how dare you draw my protagonist? He had blue eyes, not green eyes. That super fan now hates you. And all of their friends that could have been turned into fans, they all hate you as well. Yeah, there's that whole fan fiction world that is out there that's still a little mysterious, but has resulted in, I don't know, you would know this, Thomas. Has the Harry Potter franchise been sicklers on this this sort of thing? I don't know about the Harry Potter franchise, but I do know about the Star Wars and Star Trek franchises. <laughs> so with Star Wars and Star Trek, they have an issue of fan-made films where people want to have a lightsaber battle and they want to film it. And uh-huh. that's good for the Star Wars brand, uh, but it also can be bad if they're presenting this as an official Star Wars story. The most famous of which is one, it's a, it's like cops, but instead of cops, it's a bunch of stormtroopers and Coruscant, and they're dealing with all these like weird aliens who are doing criminal acts, and it's like it's a terrible job, and they have bad aim. It's a really funny fan-made show. And I think the Star Trek rule is you can't sell it. You can't raise more than like $200,000 for the production costs. And the other one, I thought this was really clever. You have to only use officially licensed merchandise in the shoots. So if you have a uniform, it can't be a homemade uniform. It has to be an, a licensed <laughs> uniform. So they're still making money off of uh, the uniforms that way. But they're encouraging it and they're allowing it. And in general, fan fiction is really good for your intellectual property as long as it's um, clearly you know, fan fiction and not be presenting itself as being written by J.K. Rowling. It's written by some super fan who's uh, fiddling with the story. Yeah. But actually, this is a question I get a lot, right? Somebody is writing their autobiography and they were molested as a child and they want to name the person who molested them or assaulted them uh, or harmed them in some way. And they're afraid, oh, if I talk about this bad person who did this bad thing to me, it's going to open up, open me up for liability. And it this fear protects these predators who often are able to continue preying on people because they're all afraid to speak out and, and let the world know, hey, this person is a bad person. That is uh, a, a risk. However, the truth is uh, a defense against defamation. And if there's evidence to support that, that's one thing. There's a really famous case of this, actually. There was this uh, radio personality who was a doctor, and he was prescribing all of these really awful, so awful I can't say it on the podcast, remedies for things that were just totally bad remedies and people were taking these remedies and they were dying this is in like the early days of radio so like radio is this brand new technology and the american medical association was basically formed to try to fight this one doctor's Hmm. quackery and what he finally did is he moved his uh, radio transmitter down into mexico and cranked up the wattage it's a really fascinating story but finally what did him in was somebody had the courage to call him out by name and write a newspaper article about it. And this man sued that person for defamation. And the defense was, everything I said was true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he won the case. <laughs> it was true. Like, if you're speaking the truth, it's not defamation. If Absolutely. I, if I say 
that you're a bully or, or, or if I, I claim that somebody has done some criminal act or, or done, has harmed me in some way and they did, then I'm pr- totally safe. And let's say the statute of limitations is up and I couldn't go after them criminally, but they sue me in a civil court and I get a chance be- finally before a judge to give my side <laughs> and I can win. You might actually get your day in court that you never got because it was so long ago. Like, have the courage to name names and write these autobiographies. Don't let the fear keep you from speaking the truth. Yeah, and there's also a, a distinction between a statement of fact and an opinion. And if it's clear that you have, like you said, if I believe this this person's a bully, that's an opinion. But if you say, you know, this person attacked me on such and such a date, that's a that's a statement of fact. So the law really is intended to protect these expressions of, of fact, and, but and you know that there is a certain protection so that people don't just lie about you. So that's where this push and pull of defamation law comes in, and that's a, that's a whole fascinating area in, in and of itself. Although I will say, I, I feel like as an observer from the outside, and you may feel differently as an attorney, but I feel like the the courts over the last hundred years have not been willing to give wins to people looking for defamation cases. Like, the, they have really been leaning in on freedom of speech and freedom of expression to the expense of people's reputations. Like, it is really hard to win a defamation case, I feel yeah. like. I, I can't name off the top of my head a defamation case somebody won, but I can think of dozens that people lost. <laughs> yeah. No, there were, there were some famous defamation wins Back in the 50s and 60s during the McCarthy era, famous that was lawyer, a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. Famous lawyer named Louis Neiser had one with a radio personality named John Henry Falk. And you're right, though. Here in America, we, we give the protection to the people doing the writing and, the, and, and so on. And there's a distinction between someone who's a private person and someone who is a public figure. It's much more difficult to win if you're a public figure. I think over in the UK, however, it's a little easier for, there have been some defamation cases that have been won over in the UK that are more favorable in that regard. But here, generally speaking, when you do write about a private person, as we were talking about, there are you know certain things to watch out for. There's a, a right of privacy. People have a right to have a private life and not have things exposed that would be embarrassing to them. Now, whether that, if that's a you know, person that needs to be exposed, that's one thing. But if you're writing a memoir, let's say, and you're talking about family members and so on, and there might be some liability there. But in general... Well, hold on. Just, let's dig into that because I don't want to just scare everyone. Everyone was about ready to write their memoir and now they're afraid again. So so in what instance would somebody have a reasonable expectation of privacy? Well, it, it's generally something that is so unfavorable that a reasonable person would look at it and say, this is going to harm the reputation of the person. That's, again, it's it's a hard standard to meet when you're suing someone because, again, the truth is a defense. So if if you're, what you're writing is true and you've, you've got the ways to back that up, you shouldn't be afraid of, of saying anything. And it's, it's really more of... Uh, if it appears that someone is an innocent party whose reputation is being ruined by someone, then maybe that's where the the risk comes in. But we should probably mention that there is something called media liability insurance, that if you're going to write these kinds of, of books, it would be well worth looking into because that's something that can 
that's the ultimate you know protection there if uh, you should ever be sued. So uh, there is a, a vehicle called Media Liability Insurance. The Authors Guild, for example, offers it if you're a member of the Authors Guild. So that's something to, to look into. Yeah, I don't think in most cases you need media liability insurance. But if you're saying Josh punched me in the second grade, you know, if you're writing that kind of autobiography, I think it could be a good investment in that kind of situation. If you're writing a Kitty Kelly kind of unauthorized tell-all biography, then uh, that would be something to look into. But for the fiction author, really, there's, there's no need for that. I agree. Uh, they will try to sell it to you hard. <laughs> they will really push you to buy that insurance. You mean insurance uh, salesmen <laughs> will, will try to make the sale? <laughs> what a shock. I know. I know. It's hard it, to believe. It's, but, like the, uh, it's like that character in uh, Groundhog Day, the insurance salesman that he keeps bumping into, <laughs> finally punches him. So back to copyright law. What are some common myths that you see about copyright law that you want to dispel? I don't think it's that complicated for an author. I mean, it's really the question of, should you register? When should you register? When should you pursue pursue something in court as opposed to, say, going through Amazon? I think those are fairly standard. I, I think sometimes for an author, the, the other side uh, of copyright law is when, you know, when can I use something in a book, like a song lyric, for example, or as an epigraph, there, you know, there are song companies that register these these lyrics for their artists and can be very litigious if you uh, use use the lyrics in a book, let's say. And that's that comes under the rubric of fair use. You know, when you're allowed to use a certain portion of published material, song lyrics are kind of a separate issue, though. The the real care is asking for for permission to use. I think. As a lawyer who loved going to court, uh, <laughs> I think there's a case that can be made that song lyrics can also fall under fair use. But I'm not recommending that to authors. <laughs> Please note. Uh, there are certain industries you do not want to go to court with. One yes. of those industries is the company Disney, which yeah, that I would was, categorize as a whole industry. And they their lawyers are the worst. <laughs> they will kill you. And they are vindictive and they are mean. And I would put all of the record industry also into that category. So so even though legally you may be in the right, I wouldn't try to make a fair use against any kind of Disney property. And it's actually going to be interesting to see if Disney continues being lenient towards all of the Star Wars fan mm -hmm. creations. Because most of those fan creations were made under the LucasArts era of Star Wars. And now that Disney owns it, they may uh, crack down. Let me just say one more word about the song lyrics that... Uh, something that I've done and a lot of authors that I'm friends with have done is that you can paraphrase the song lyrics. For example, instead of putting, we all live on a yellow submarine, you can say, you know, out of the radio, the Beatles were singing about that yellow submarine that everybody was living on. You can do it that way and kind of paraphrase the song lyric. But in general, I once wanted to uh, put a whole song, a uh, classic song, Anything Goes, Cole Porter song in a book, and uh, I wrote to the uh, holders of that uh, copyright and got permission and put that in the uh, where the copyright notice is. You know, say he, the, the the lyrics of the song quoted by permission and so forth. So, if you ever wanted to do that, that's one way to do it. Yeah, and I think fair use is important to talk about with any kind of discussion about copyright because. 
there is it's kind of a this uh, tension where copyright is pulling in one direction and fair use is pulling in another direction. And there's a bunch of different criteria that the courts look at for determining fair use. So it's not a clear yes, it's fair use or not fair use. There's a bunch of different things that they look at. So, for instance, one really strong defense for fair use is parody. So you'll see Saturday Night Live taking copyrighted works and ridiculing them with parody, and they did not get permission to do that, right? They do a fake commercial for a new Apple product, right? And they make fun of how expensive Apple products are. The parody defense is a really strong defense. Another defense for fair use is education. I'm doing this for educational purposes. So the teacher who photocopies a page of your book and distributes it to all of her students in the classroom to for some kind of exercise you like, she's copying it on a photocopier. That's a copyright violation. It's like, well, it's actually the courts would say it's probably fair use because she's doing it in this educational context. Yeah, the the, the fair use doctrine is uh, a cloudy, murky world, <laughs> like a London night fog. You know, it's and and honestly, sometimes it's only settled through litigation. But by the way, speaking of parody, it's interesting that parody is a defense against defamation. There's a famous case involving Jerry Falwell, where he was depicted in a very gross manner in a in Playboy magazine, I think it was. And um, you know, the court held, the Supreme Court ultimately held that when when it's an obvious parody, then that's really a commentary uh, opinion piece, and it's not. It's obviously not defamation because it's an obvious parody. It's an obvious fictional rendition. Um, one other element of fair use I want to talk about is the impact of the what you're doing on the commercial appeal Correct. of the product. So if you are using a copyrighted work in a way that makes people more interested in that copyrighted work, uh, you're, you're referencing it in some way where people get really interested or they don't know about it, now they do. That's a really strong defense. So for the classic example is a review. Right? I'm reviewing a book, and maybe it's a critical review, But even a critical review is putting the book in front of people who don't know about the book anyway. So authors make a big deal about the fact that I'm giving you permission to review the book, when in reality, they don't have to give you permission Mm -hmm. because you can use the fair use defense of saying, hey, I'm taking a small portion, I am ridiculing it, or I'm commenting on it, or I love it, right? The fact that it's positive or negative is, I don't think, makes a big difference. You may disagree. That one part of of fair use doctrine, which again, the courts always say it's not any one of these. It's kind of an amalgam. We take a look at all of it, how much was used, the commercial, the educational. But one of the things just about song lyrics again is how much damage does that do to the marketability of the song? The song lyrics are all over the internet. They're everywhere, you know? And uh, now, once again, I'm not advocating this but I'm just saying that someday, maybe I'll- I feel like you never got your lawsuit against the big record labels. <laughs> you wanted yeah. to take them to court and you never got your chance. Yeah, um. I, but no, that's that. But that's again, that's how you have to think about think these things through. And that's why if you're ever going to think of them, go find a good lawyer and talk it over. Speaking of which, how does because I, I have people coming to me all the time. Uh, looking for a good intellectual property lawyer. And 
in, at least in my world here in Austin, most of the IP lawyers do more patent work and trademark work. They're not really in the copyright game very much. So where does somebody go to find a good lawyer who really understands copyrights and kind of the author world? The, the best way is to get a recommendation from someone who knows a good intellectual property lawyer that's not always available to us, that we don't know people that, that have that. There is a website owned by uh, Thomson Reuters, which is a the big legal publishing uh, company. It's called findlaw.com, findlaw.com. And they have a whole page on there on how to f- find a lawyer in your area who specializes in this work. And if you wanted to do that, I would advise finding a lawyer who will set up an initial free consultation if you have to pay a little bit of a fee, that's fine if you're getting the information that you need. But that's one way to do it is to, and, and they will give you the profile of the lawyer and what their specialty is and what they've dealt with. And you can, you can usually do it that way if you, if you need to. And if you are an, a lawyer listening to this episode, maybe you have some opinions about what we've said, because uh, if you put two lawyers in a room, you're going to get five or six opinions in my experience. You're welcome to post in the job board at authormedia.social saying, hey, I'm an intellectual property lawyer. I work with authors. Here's what I do. Here's a link to my website. This is one of the great features of authormedia.social is it's a way to connect with other professionals in the publishing world. And you know, if you're looking for a lawyer, you're looking for an agent or an editor, uh, authormedia.social is a free service that I offer my listeners. And I would love for some lawyers to jump on there and, and uh, hang hang their shingle because we have a lot of indie authors who, who would love to hire a lawyer if they just knew a good one to find. Great. But if not, findlaw.com is, uh, is kind of the generic backup. <laughs> They're not going to make a recommendation, right? That doesn't have like star ratings right. or user reviews, but it will say, hey, here's six lawyers in your area who do yeah. intellectual property law. Tell us a little bit about your writing, because some of your books, even your novels, cover the legal world. Is that right? Well, I've written a number of legal thrillers. I usually have some kind of legal aspect going on in my plots. That's just because you know the law, courtroom, drama is ever fresh. I mean, it's, it's why you have all the TV shows that you have. It's just a great venue for writing about issues and also... I loved being a trial lawyer. I love that whole area and strategy and tactics and things that trial lawyers do. So that's just a good fodder for uh, conflict that uh, I like to include. Can I make a request for a future book? Can you write a book about an indie author who gets into a copyright dispute with a big, powerful company that's totally not Disney? (laughs) Or, yeah, yeah, the, the not Disney. Or perhaps is maligned by a podcaster who uh, <laughs> we would never do that. We're, uh, we only say nice things about people. What are you talking about? <laughs> so there you go. No, I think, I think either of those would be a great subject for a book and would be fun to read because it would take people into that world of intellectual property lock. Um, so uh, we're just about out of time, but do you have any uh, final encouragement or tips for authors who are just getting started in this learning about copyright? Well, I mean, educate yourself. It's very easy to do. There are good books out there on copyright law. Nolo Press, N-O-L-O Press, publishes good books for consumers on these areas of law. But again, there are lots of websites 
that can educate you on this. Don't be afraid of it because it's not that complicated. And don't be afraid to write what you feel you need to write, what you are being called to write. As Thomas has said, if if there's an important issue that you want to tackle and it involves making controversial statements, go ahead and do it. And if you have any any doubts about what you're doing, then you can run it by a lawyer. These publishing companies all have lawyers that review manuscripts. So if it ever comes to that, you can get the protection you need. But the law is really set up to protect content creators, people who are writing things about important issues, people, events. So do have that going for you. And we want to encourage that. There is a quote from Captain America that I think uh, summarizes this really well. He's talking with Peter Parker in the Civil War comics, and he says, It doesn't matter what the press says. It doesn't matter what the politicians or the mob say. It doesn't matter if the whole country decides something wrong is something right. This nation was founded on one principle above all else, the requirement that we stand up for what we believe, no matter the odds or the consequences. When the mob and the press and the whole world tell you to move, your job is to plant yourself like a tree beside the river of truth and tell the whole world, no, you move. Oh, that's nice. Very good. I love that. That's the Captain America of the classic comics. And that's how we need to be as authors. We need to plant ourselves by the river of truth. Don't let the bullies push us away from the truth. We stand there and that is the best defense when it comes to pretty much everything. (laughs) This episode of the Novel Marketing Podcast is brought to you by our course, A Tax and Business Guide for Authors. This is a course I put together with my dad, who's a CPA. So we dig into the CPA side of a lot of these things. And we talk about tax deductions that you can take advantage of as an author if the IRS sees you as a business. And we talk about whether or not the IRS sees you as a business, the criteria that they look at and so much more. You even get training by me on how to put together a business plan if you're an indie author. And if you're a patron of the Novel Marketing Podcast, you can save 50% off the price of the course. Speaking of patrons, our featured patron today is Jennifer Lamont Leo, author of The Rose Keeper. During the Great Depression, a spoiled socialite must find a way to support herself and her child. Can she turn a homemade soup recipe For a skin tonic into a livelihood, find out by reading The Rose Keeper. Jennifer, thank you for being a patron of the Novel Marketing Podcast. Thank you for your support that keeps these episodes coming every week. And one of the ways that I say thank you to patrons like Jennifer is by releasing a special episode just for them every month. In this month's patrons-only episode, we talk about staying safe on Goodreads, how to prevent writing burnout, how to get more email subscribers, tools to write better blog post titles, what to do if you write in multiple genres, bookbub tips, and a lot more. This month's episode was packed. We got more questions than ever before. And if you would like to become a patron of the Novel Marketing Podcast, you can do that at authormedia.com slash patron. If you have a question you'd like for me to answer on a future episode, uh, give us a call on our listener helpline, 512-827-8377, or you can send us a high-quality recording at authormedia.com slash contact. 
Uh, you have been listening to Thomas Umstadt Jr. and James Scott Bell on the Novel Marketing Podcast, which is a production of Author Media. This episode's audio was edited by William Umstadt, and the blog post is by Shauna Lettler. Uh, to find the blog post version of this episode, go to authormedia.com forward slash 304. Thank you for listening, and live long and prosper.